laugh at this next part. In a world of political correctness and cancel culture, comedians have risen up to prove that with the right angle, anything can be funny. This is You Can't Laugh at That. Who writes these? Huh? Who should have this person locked up and looked at? On this week's episode... I don't have the power to be selective about where my jokes come from. It's just like what it is that's on my mind. You know, some people might be so creatively gifted they can really, you know, choose to talk about other things, but that's just where it goes. It was like a challenging family situation that I had problems with. And I'm like, there's lots of angles I want to talk about here. You can't laugh at that. Welcome to You Can't Laugh at That, the podcast where we take topics you can't laugh at and find ways to laugh at them in our never-ending mission to find the funny in everything. I'm still kind of trying to like find an opening, you know, an opening. I think that's pretty good, right? Yeah. Uh, joining us today is... Gianmarco Ceresi uh, from New York. Are you from New York? Uh, are you from the city originally or? Uh, Maryland, DC. Okay. Uh, but I came up here a lot as a kid and I've been here almost a decade now. So it feels, you know, I've had a rat run into my leg. I've, I've uh, been attacked. I'm a New Yorker in my bones. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff's on the brochure when you, uh, when you visit there. Those should be, I feel like they need to be more honest, you know, <laughs> Yeah, they always say, like, you know, it's five years, it's ten years, you have to be born here. But, like, it's, I think it's more about, ex like, shitty experiences that make you a New Yorker. When there's some kind of bingo card that I've I've passed. I have multiple bingos. <laughs> that's that's fair to say. I think I lived there for two years as well. Um, so I did uh, experience some of those. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, the first time I got my own subway car, I was like, this is awful. This yeah. is the worst thing I've ever walked into. So that, you know, just things like that. Um, and that kind of falls right into line with, with the podcast episode today. Um, we all have shitty experiences that make us into comedians on yeah. some level or an experience that, you know, where we find the funny in that. And today we're going to be talking about our upbringing, our parents, our uh, hopefully, I mean, shitty upbringings uh, in a lot of cases. I find that yeah. to be true as far as uh, a lot of comics go. Uh, we are going to start with a bit by John Marco, and uh, we'll talk about that. Did you want to introduce the clip? Um, so I just I'll say that, like, my parents, I basically grew up with divorced parents. I, I don't remember any time uh, that I didn't have divorced parents. It happened so young. And then my mom got divorced from my stepdad when I was like 18. So I feel very familiar with divorce. And this is like, it's a topic I've tried to explore from the beginning of stand-up. And these are some like, I think these are like three super fine-tuned jokes that took years to kind of figure out, you know, how to make something like that funny. All right. With that being said, Jeremy, take us away on this journey. My parents are divorced. My, my parents, they got divorced when I was seven days old. So like most kids, my first word was, Mama! But my next five were, Told me to tell you! <laughs> the, the, 
custody battle got so ugly that when I was old enough to talk, the judge ruled I could decide where I wanted to live. So I moved in with the judge. <laughs> my parents, they hated each other. But I will say this, whenever I got cast like in the school musical, my mom and dad would always show up on opening night. And my dad would bring this big bouquet of daffodils because he remembered my mom is allergic. <laughs> Can't laugh at that. Like you were saying before, you know, we introduced that clip. I mean, they're they're very tight. Each joke is just so tight. How many uh, how many instances of like misplaced audience sympathy did you have to like get through to get to just to make it a laugh? There was a there was a lot. You know, I think I certainly and a lot of comedians will be like, oh, I hate it when the audience goes aw. And sometimes you do have people that are overly sensitive, but often. When people go, aw, that means that even if your joke is funny, it is not funny enough to pierce through the response of sympathy. Um, so my original like go-to was my parents got divorced when I was seven days old. So it was my fault. And that was like the, I kept working it. Sometimes it would pop a little. Sometimes, it, but a lot of times I just get an aw. And... I think the reason for that is, I think the joke is sound. Like, I think that joke makes sense. We all know the stereotype in our head of you say it's not your fault, but it's predictable. Even though there is the joke there, I have had audience members when I just do the setup, my parents got divorced when I was seven days old, so it was your fault. And if enough people think that quickly enough, that means it is not surprising enough to overcome it. Um, same goes for... The, the second joke, uh, my, my judge told me I could decide where I wanted to live. I used to do, so I picked jail. So I chose the electric chair. So I moved to the circus. And it's like it's different levels of success, but only judge was twisty enough and unique enough and surprising enough that it overcame that we're talking about custody. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I think is was tricky about all the divorce material where even the third one, the bouquet line, like I had versions of that where people said, Oh, so you're just saying your dad's an asshole. And it's like, you have to set it up. So you really don't see where it's going or you really think it's going a different way. And so that's why I think any, any joke that like deals with something where one might feel sympathy, the surprise and the pop has to immediately be stronger than that that gut response. Or you're gonna get occasionally, oh, yeah. and no one wants that. We all hate that. We hate it all. Uh, I know, it's the worst. I am I do the same thing with my sets. Like even, you know, if it gets a little bit of a pop, but if it also gets that, that alternate reaction, that awe or that like, oh, but that's not what I'm looking for. It's like, oh, I have to tighten this up. Yeah, um, and it's, it's weird, like, because and sometimes, you know, people will, comedians will end up yelling at the audience where they'll be like, don't feel bad for me. I'm on stage talking about it. Like the bad thing happens, you know, or this isn't helping now. I need your laughter now. But obviously you, you can't lecture anyone into laughing. So, but like, that's just the reality that no matter when you tell them something that happened 20 years ago or is imaginary, 
people will feel sympathy for the circumstance and you have to have something that supersedes it. Right. I mean, yeah, we, you know, as an audience, we picture ourselves almost in your shoes. So it's like, you know, there's that little bit of it. I mean, I don't know if I'll say empathy, uh, but yeah, you're right. That sympathy. I mean, we've all been there. We all know people who have gone through it. So, you know, yeah. in our heads, we're, we're attaching our experience to your joke. Yeah. As an audience. No, and you do a great job of that. Uh, and, and I mean, all your material, like you're very good at, you know, here's the setup. So we think it's going one way. And then you're the, the bait and switch of the punchline is fantastic. Yeah. I think it really changed for me. So I was an actor first and I came to stand up comedy. And like many people who make that, that leap, I was more performative than writing. Um, and I think like, I really came to appreciate what it means that pop was doing roast battles and then like becoming really obsessed with Anthony Jeselnik where like, it was just like, if you, if you have that pop, you can do anything. If that writing is that tight, then you can be performative. You can be deadpan. You can do anything because your bones are solid. And uh, that's kind of what I strive for these days. I, I write everything down to a word in my computer. I fine tune it. And that's how those jokes came to be. Like that first joke where the punchline is, my first word was mama, but my next five were told me to tell you. Even the delivery of it took a long time. I used to do it too fast. Um, it's a very wordy joke. And like I eventually got the told me to tell you with a break in between after the first two words. So like these are jokes that were, you know, forged and forged and very specific um, in their delivery. You say you you went from acting to stand up. Uh, what made you do stand up the first time? What made you make that switch? Um, I always loved. I mean, I always was like a comedy guy. My mom bought me a George Carlin album early on. I saw Ralphie Mae when I was young. My dad took me to Dangerfield when I was like twelve, and some woman talked about like accidentally injecting like nicotine in her clitoris and I was 12 and I didn't know what either of those words meant. And so uh, I always loved comedy. And then in college, I actually spent a summer in New York and took a class at Caroline's comedy club. I did like five minutes there. I went back to college. I just did an hour for like friends. You know, when you first, when you first start writing, like it all pours out and you know, 40% of it was like fucking jokes. And, uh, but my friends loved it. And because it went so well, I was like, oh, I guess I'm a stand-up comedian as well. And then I never, you know, I perform, you know, twice a year at Caroline's Bringers for a couple years. And then I would do one open mic, I'd bomb because the writing wasn't there. Like I knew how to like live off a sold out Caroline's house. I had mm -hmm. the energy and the stage presence to do it. And I'd bomb at the mics and in my head I'd be like, well, I guess open mics just aren't accurate reflections. Or I, I say to myself, at some point I used to think for real, oh, well, I only do well if it's like a sold out audience. And, you know, that's the delusion when you're not familiar with the world that you can easily fall under. And uh, then I wrote a play um, that had a lot of like storytelling jokes in it. And a friend, producer friend, kind of took me out to lunch and said like, you should be doing this. And um, I'd always kind of wanted to, but you know, it's a different life. And I, I was used to spending nights, I was more of a hermit. I would spend nights alone and 
really committing to stand up like was giving up that life. You know, my, my nights shifted entirely. Um, and then, so I, I just started and I, I got in and I felt very jealous of people who were very good and just worked like mad to get good fast. Yeah. That's a great environment to do it in too. Um, I always, I, I love working with comics that are, that are better than me just for that reason. Um, you know, it pushes you for sure. Coming from a theater background, are there any shows or any styles that kind of influence your your writing, your performing um, as, a, as a comedian? I still feel like I'm very eclectic, um, which I think is, it has its ups and downs. I think like there's sometimes I'm like, well, what am I really? Because I don't, I never go full Jesselnik, but like there's times where I will really slow it down and I'll be like, you're going to listen to my setup and the punchline is going to work and we're all going to be happy. Then times I'm doing like more rants that, you know, I, I there, it's not Bill Burian, but they're, they're more rants. And then I have more storytelling and uh, it all feels very eclectic. I think the comedians that like I'm most, Jesselnik is one who's more personal and many people would never think that with me, which is fine. It's more about like, sometimes I just want to tell jokes with a long setup. And then Mulaney, I've listened to so much. I've mm -hmm. done an impersonation that like he, he comes in uh, and it's more that those are the two where I just can't listen to too much or it just comes out. And I've, I've been doing it four and a half years and I'm like, I'm trusting the process of, in terms of the more I headline and do an hour, a more clear image of what I am will emerge. Or I'll just be like a guy that if you see me do an hour, you're gonna get some like loud act outs. And then at some point I'll slow it down and just do straight jokes for 10 minutes. And, and that'll be that. But it's, I still feel like I'm discovering what that is for me. You say it's, uh, you've been doing it four and a half years? About, I'd say. Yeah. If you disregard like the Carolines, which I do, because it's like I didn't really do it. Right. When I be decided to become a stand-up comedian, it was like it was like 2016, 2017 or whatever. Um, okay. And then I, I just like, within a couple months, I just went crazy with it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I know, like I said, you know, when we open this conversation, I mean, just your, your comfort on stage and, and, you know, you're, you're obviously leaning into your theater background and that that's obviously a tool that, that you, you know, that you should lean into. Like if you have any background like that, like, like theater or speech or, you know, improv or whatever, definitely lean into that. And uh, it's, it's just a very calming because for an audience member, because it exudes confidence. Um, you know, as an audience member, you want to know that the guy who's on stage that's going to be talking to you for the next few minutes knows what the fuck he's about to say, and he means it. And that's, you know, you you exude that uh, well. Laughing. Roast Battles was where I learned, where I was forced to learn, like, what a pure joke is. Mm -hmm. And I think it was good in that, like, when you suck at a roast battle, it stings your ego. I mean, like, the first couple of roast battles, I would leave like, you know, almost teary eyed because I was just like, I, I suck. I suck. And you're like, why does this other person, the words that they use, it 
explodes in laughter and I get silence. And uh, that was a really good uh, training. Yeah, it was great. Now, did you utilize like your your acting uh, experience on stage when you first started stand up, or did you try to like more emulate, like you said, Jesselnick um, when you in first? The beginning, in the beginning, it was just like more more act outs, more kind of longer stories. I wouldn't really know how to be like, oh, this is my tight joke, you know, be like, this is my story about. Uh, you know, first time I discovered sexual sensations and it ended with me pumping the ground. And some of the jokes I still do when I just, you know, I found the tighter internal jokes. But uh, yeah, it was just like more long form. And now I think there's part of me that's worries I'm a little too uh, joke, 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 joke. But I'm also, you know, Zoom certainly doesn't help. I mean, that makes me lean into... Uh, singular jokes because you just have to be like punchline did it work moving on you can't really you know you go through stages but just when they like I, I can't listen to him too much and we're very different but mm. those like divorce jokes I love just saying a setup taking your time building the tension and one punch that you just fucking know works and it feels great yeah, it's the best feeling in the world for sure. Uh, when you when you write a like, did those punchlines take you by surprise? Some of them, uh, like the judge, like when I when I figured out the uh, move in with the judge, like it, it really was like, uh, oh, that's that's kind of funny. I'm I'm not. I write a lot stoned, and I think one of the reasons it works better is because I think my bar for what I I'm not a big laugher. I wish I was. When I'm stoned, more things seem funny. And when I'm stoned, as like disgusting as it sounds, I can write and laugh at my own ideas. And it's like when you think of a punchline stoned, I'll like start laughing. I'll be like, oh, that is hilarious. And 90% I'm so wrong. And the next day I'm like, that, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but uh, once in a while, like the judge thing where you lets you see outside the box a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they took me by surprise, but, but a lot of them, I really, I know with the divorce material, like I know the, I know the setups and I'm like, I just have to come with the punch that is best. Um, and I have a lot of divorce jokes right now. I'm working on a lot more because like those ones I posted on TikTok and they, they like went much more viral than anything else I had posted. And it made me go oh, people relate to this. People with divorced parents, they see something they recognize and so they like really like the joke in a, in a different level than it's just being a decent joke. Mm-hmm. So I've been like working on a handful of new divorce jokes and it's very hard because for them to really be part of the chunk, they need to be the level of those three. If it's any less, it feels like a miss, even if it's a B plus. Mm-hmm. So I have like a bunch of setups where I'm like just trying to find the exact punchline that isn't predictable, that supersedes the awe, uh, um, which can be tough when you're talking about me being a kid or if I'm insulting my mom or my dad. There are certain things that people get sensitive to. If I make a joke about my dad cheating on my mom, 
cheating is a thing that for a lot of people they just go oh or like Mm-mm. and you're in parties like it was he cheated in the 90s you don't give a fuck about this just let me joke about it but people have that response i insult my mom all the time and i don't mind if someone's like no that's fine that's funny but people are sensitive about, you know, how you speak to your mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have some jokes. I probably have some jokes that I should lose because it's just like people think it's too mean. And I love it because I'm a comedian and we like, you know, our tolerance for cruelty is higher than an average human being, um, at least verbal abuse. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that's what I have to figure out with all those new divorce jokes. When did you like start making jokes about your parents and when did you realize that you could use humor as kind of like a like a coping strategy i went back and forth it was a contentious uh it was always just it was stress i mean i think if there's anything that led to me being a comedian was just kind of it's stressful to go back and forth i had a stepdad who was very strict um, who and kind of I think there was a whirlwind of going from my dad who was this bachelor with a lot of different girlfriends to and you know there's stuff there of women who would just be my mom of sorts and then leave and then on my mom's I had this strict stepdad at one moment I, I've done like in storytelling that I feel like it's comedic in its own way where uh, I was it was at a summer uh, with my mom and my stepfather and it was my birthday. I hadn't been able to reach my dad all day and which was weird. He was very, we talked more than my mom would have liked when I was at her house. And I reached him late at night and my stepdad and I were alone in a car. And he said, you know, after I talked to my dad for a minute, he was like, wrap it up. I did any mouth. I did not get you that phone to talk to that man. Mm-hmm. And I was I was filled with rage. I had never talked back to my stepfather. I had this, at my dad's, I was fun. And I would curse, even though I was 15 at the time, I just turned 15. And I was furious. I felt I was in the right. And when I hung up the phone, I turned to my stepdad and I said, you're just mad because my dad fucked your wife before you did. And like, I don't know if that's comedy or not, but like, it's it's a good burn. (laughs) And it's like, it felt just a moment that like, you know, I'm not saying it's witty, but for a 15 year old, it felt like a, an insightful remark. And so like, it was a mix of like my rage, my like biting nature and expressing a thought that I was hiding of just like, you're mean to me. And it's, it's obvious why you're mean to me. And, uh, that felt like a moment for me of like at least speaking my mind, which I think is connected to being funny. And then I, I was just, I was always like the funny guy. I did comedy scenes and goofy and whatnot. And then when, when I went to do the Caroline's class, it just like clicked of like, oh, this is how I can talk about these things that I thought was funny. Um, like when I took Linda's class, I I'd just gone through a, a breakup and an ex-girlfriend texted me. She, she was, she said, uh, what kind of KY did we use? And it was just like, a, oh, I can do stand-up about this. 
this is ridiculous. It made me feel shitty. It's such an absurd thing, such a passive aggressive bullshit. And Stan was just like, oh, finally, I know what to do with all this now. Um, and I wish I had started, I wish I had like, you know, really started in full in earnest there. But, you know, I was an actor doing other people's lines. And then when you enter the business professionally, you realize, oh, most of the stuff I do fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I could be a regular on a TV show making a, an incredible living and there's still a 95% chance it's a piece of fucking garbage. Not everything's breaking bad. And, uh, and that that's when I was like, Oh, I, I have to write for myself and mm-hmm. Santa's how I want to do that. Yeah. I used to do sketch. So I would write words for other people sure. and, and that was great. I, you know, I really enjoyed it, but um, I mean, to me, I'm, you know, I'm the same way. Like I like to say my own words uh, because they like mean more to me than to the other people. And it's hard to like, I don't enjoy kind of communicating that with actors and directors and things like that as much. I don't know if people, you know, I'm sure at some point in my life, hopefully just so I can make some money, I'll have to write like for a a show or maybe someone else to tell the jokes. And I feel like I would feel nothing but pain Mm -hmm. like they fuck it up or like I would have to resist, you know, the narcissistic urge to be like, I wrote that one. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's, uh, I, I don't know how people do it. I think it's, I, that's not how I work emotionally with my reward system. Right. You just gather the family around the TV for one episode. You wrote one line that's going to make it <laughs> onto TV. And- I think the guy, they, you know, they catch, I have a fake Twitter account where I'm like, Oh, did you know so-and-so wrote that joke? <laughs> um, Cause they do that with Saturday night live sketches all the time. We're like, somehow it comes out that, you know, so-and-so wrote this sketch. Yeah. And it's like, I bet you, a lot of them are are planting it in some way, shape, or form. Sure, we all have we all have a vanity in us. I mean, it, you know, to be a stand up comedian, you have to have some level of vanity to to be able to do that. The highest. Oh, for some sure. I see all these stand up comics who are doing shows during coronavirus, and there's an acknowledgement of sorts because some aren't some aren't doing the Zoom, some aren't doing outdoors. When I see the ones that are doing outdoors in like a bunch, like me, I think we have an acknowledgement of like. We fucking need this. Mm-hmm. Like, we're, we need this bad. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that, that we're both desperate for this. Yeah, oh. if we were team players, we wouldn't be comedians. We'd, we'd do improv, we'd improvise. We'd do really- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel jealous of those. I, I'm on a sketch team, and I think that keeps me humble, or I have to connect to the idea of like working with other people. But I think that's why I'm drawn to this. You know, I was not a good group project person in middle school. And, uh, you know, I think that's a real sign that you should be a solo artist. Yeah. Same thing. Just being at a writer's table, too, um, that like and seeing the magic that came from a kind of funny idea and then bounce it around to a bunch of people. And then you make a connection and like finally have the joke that you're looking for like Mm -hmm. that. Uh, that has opened me up as far as because I'm super open to getting feedback from other comics. Like if another comic has a tag for me after I get off stage, I am in like I am even if I don't use it, it'll at least like have me thinking. Um, and I think, you know, that that's important. Otherwise, I would just be a, a, just a piece of shit. <laughs> just like having it's that experience. Very hard. I mean, I have some friends that we try to write together. But it is hard. People work on different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. I, I actually talked to my friend Sam Morrison, who's a comedian last night. 
And he likes to talk an idea out and then we talk it over. Me, at least right now, all I want to do is tell you my setup and punchline and you let me know if it works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, maybe we'll explore it. But otherwise, I'm like, yeah, okay, good to know. I will go back to the lab and figure this out. And some people like to talk. Sometimes I get with comedians and we just end up talking and I'm like, well, we didn't really write a joke. Uh, it's very hard. It's that's why, you know, you I appreciated early on that, like why when a composer and lyricist find each other, they work together forever and ever and ever. And I'm like, yeah, because if you fucking find it, you stay with it forever because you might never find it again. Right. No, that's that's super true. I uh, I sometimes find some of my funniest bits just talking, just in conversation with friends. Mm-hmm. Like, like the other day, uh, we were on uh, a friend of mine and I were on our way back from a show, like forty minutes away, and uh, we just started talking about how ridiculous cathedrals are, and like uh-huh. you know, they take two hundred fifty to three hundred years to build, and that's an insane. Like, how do you how do you motivate somebody to want to work at that job? Like, how do you you know so. Well, there's, there's or like, or like, what did, what did you build, Daddy? Yeah, uh, half of that tower <laughs> over there. That was my life. Yeah, I'd be the piece of shit to put the last. Like, got hired like two days before, and then that be like, was hilarious. The final guy, and he's just like, "What do I do today? Put in the last brick." Oh, you did it. <laughs> That's mine. <laughs> so that could be a sketch too. That's oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I, I tend to think of jokes in terms of that. Like, could this also be a sketch? Like what are the layers to it? Because I, I still occasionally will write a sketch just yeah. to keep my muscle strong. Because uh, I did UCB when I was in New York, and and that was a lot of fun. Um, but and it's funny because I worked at Caroline's as a server. <laughs> so oh really? Like, yeah. So, but I didn't do stand up when I lived in New York. I was always like, oh no, I'm a I'm a sketch writer. I do characters. Like, <laughs> and then <laughs> I love the haughtiness of someone going, I do characters. <laughs> And now stand up. I'm an improviser. Yeah, exactly. I can't stand that, David. Like that that guy is a piece of shit. That was real funny. Yeah. You gotta find your voice. You gotta find what you know the, the avenue that works best for, for is, you. And is there ever been a like a, a joke that you've written that you didn't know was funny because it actually happened to you? I mean, there's definitely stuff that happens where you're like, oh, the joke is done. Like that, I mean, that's the best gift life can give you but no usually it's just uh, whenever i try i remember once i was punched in the nose on the street just what and he said it's because i was walking too slowly <laughs> and uh i i i like tried that thing i went i had a show at the friars club and it was like sold out it was super hot i was killing it and then i was like i was killing it so much i was like let's just let's just talk about that i got punched today and I was like, so I got punched in the face today. Crazy, crazy. And like, you felt like just all the energy leave the room. And I ended up finding a punchline for it that I was really proud of. But now it's a little bit delicate because it's, it's, uh, it deals with race. But it was, it's, it was a great, it was a great joke. But, it, you know, it rarely is it the circumstances, you know, you'll get a great setup from life. But then, like, you realize when you try to wing it like that, that a punchline just, they rarely come fully formed. Mm. Mm. Um, and you just end up going, oh, fucking crazy. What the fuck? That's when I know, oh, I need to do more writing. When the punchline is, what 
what the fuck is that? What? Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. There are so many comics that headline these like C and D level clubs across the country where that's their punchline. And everyone in the audience is like, it is crazy. We like that. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> it, it's, it's maddening to see. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Cause it's like, if I don't get the exact reaction I want, I'm just going to keep reworking the punchline or find new punchlines. How many other angles? I mean, you kind of went through a few different punchlines on the judge, uh, the judge joke, which it's a great joke. I mean, it, it ended like exactly how you wanted it. So like, were there other angles that you took? Um, were there like more anger based angles? Were there more like, yeah, there was like, uh, cause like that, that was revolving around custody. And so like, I have a couple of them that I'm still working out. Cause I basically went back and forth and there was a cop, there was like a complicated schedule and you know you forgot stuff sometimes at the other house we had to alternate holidays so i've tried to figure out so many different jokes about custody and some of them were about like you know how how tough it was going back and forth or i used to talk about the big duffel bag that i brought back and forth that had all my belongings and they come at it from all all sorts of different ways and it's just like one joke and i may have it now I'm still testing it out, but like, so then I talk, I, so my parents got joint custody. So every couple of days, my mom would pick me up at my dad's and my dad would pick me up at my, 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 my mom's until I was old enough to drive into a tree. And it's like, it's originally, that was where I was really focusing. It would be like, so I, I had like, this is not good, but it was like, I had to go mom's house, dad's house, mom's house, dad's house, courthouse, mom's house. Like I thought that would be enough. It wasn't, uh, so I go back and forth, mom's house, dad's house, until I was old enough to join the circus. Like I, I was desperate to find that, and I'm hoping the one I just did for you like is the solution into a tree. But again, the bar it has to clear for me to. I'm hoping to have like a tight five on just divorce, mm -hmm. and for the bar for it to clear is high. So like. I'm deal I, 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 one point I just looked up just like, uh, at some point, you know, in Twitter history, there was a thing, there was something trending about divorced parents. And I look up like to remind myself, okay, what do, what do people we have to deal with as divorced kids? So there was like one thing I always wanted to do was my mom would always say like, you have your dad's temper or something. So now I'm trying like, uh, uh, my parents blame each other for all my flaws. Like if I have a tantrum, my mom says, you have your dad's temper. Or if I knock something over, my dad says, you have your mom's big ass nose. And uh, it's it's just like, I have all those setups and it's just figuring out a punchline that really, really, and then sometimes, and it'll be years down the road where I might go like, you know what? making a joke about going back and forth, no matter what, it's obvious that the punchline is going to be something weird outside of those two options. Whereas with the judge, it was a surprise. The back and forth, it feels less of a surprise. You'd want to do something else. Mm -hmm. So maybe that setup is, is trash, but it'll be years before I'll be willing to give up on what feels like a very core tenet of, divorce which is going back and forth right oh so, we'll so, see the torture 
Yeah, it's like, you know, you spend more time trying to figure out a setup and a joke than, you know, some parents try to figure out their relationship. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you do have to find that that connection, uh, find a way to connect something that doesn't even, like driving into a tree, you know, I think that, I mean, I think that works. I think the pause is obviously important in that too. You know, you don't want to, you yeah. don't want to jump too, make the leap too far too fast so the audience yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't have time I, I spent more more time writing jokes about my parents' marriage than they did. Use it. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. My parents are still still together, so that doesn't work for me. I mean, not that I'm rubbing it in. I'm not. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, because like as a kid, you know, you look up at your parents. I, I don't know if this was uh, the true for you, but at at a certain age, you figure out, oh, these are just flawed people like me. Uh, and that, and then once you kind of figure that out, you can kind of look back and, and see all the times where it was like, oh, they had no idea what the fuck they were doing. Okay, yeah. so that's fun. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I was always made free. My parents have never complained about me talking about them. I wouldn't accept it, really. I, I feel very strongly with those, that kind of stuff. I'd be like, baby, I lived it. You don't have ownership of this. You know, you cheated on my mom. Sorry, I'm not going to not talk about it. They've never complained. The only two times they've complained, I once used my mom's uh, maiden name. Uh, but it was it was more about the fact that it was a joke. She thought I was calling her a slut, uh, which wasn't the joke. Funnily enough, I thought it was much worse. <laughs> but, like, I was calling her a bad mom. But she thought I was calling her a slut. And that was like the one thing it was about her giving a hand job in high school. And I was like, that's not, that's not slutty, but you know, and then my dad, my uncle, I had a joke about my uncle who dealt with drugs. And I had a joke, very surreal about my uncle being a former crack addict. Uh, and then the rest was completely made up, but he was like, you know, I was worried it was hurt your uncle's feelings. And I was like, well, if my uncle comes to me with that, I'll take it, I'll, I'll take it in consideration, but like you bringing it to me, I don't care if you're, you're worried on his behalf. Like he's a 65 year old man, he can tell me. Um, uh, but there is something weird. Like I definitely have a, my mom saw me in DC once and I'd written a new joke, which I don't do too much because I think it's one of those that it's too harsh. Uh, but I like had a, I kind of was excited to say it with my mom in the room, which I think is fucked up. And it was like, the only way my mom knew to show me love was with hostess cupcakes. If I got a hundred percent on a spelling test, she'd let me have two hostess cupcakes for dessert, which is why even now as an adult, when I do something well, I get this intense craving for a better mom. And I was like, so like, and that's an example where like comedians will dig it. But an audience would be like, whoa, that is mean. And I had some kind of fucked up thrill to like do it with my mom in the room. <laughs> um, but I always have to make sure because my mom, my dad doesn't see too many shows, but my mom has been good. And I have to make sure that people don't know she's in the room because that'll change everything. And I did... I did an hour at Stand Up New York, which at this point, like, look, it's one of these things like a year later, you're like, well, it wasn't that big a deal. But at the time it was like, I'm headlining Stand Up New York. I need this to go well. 
And I told the host, like, the one thing you can do crowd work, but you cannot identify my mom. Um, and like the first woman he talked to, I don't think he knew, but he was like, well, what do you do? And she was like, Pilates teacher. And I was like, oh, fuck me from backstage. <laughs> and, and he kept asking her stuff. And she eventually was like, well, you know, I don't want to talk too much. You know, I, I, I know someone on the show. And I think he realized and moved on. But I had a moment where I was like, I'm going to murder you. Like, I have jokes that I know won't work if they know the person I'm talking about is in the room. Um, but, yeah, I like to be – I write a lot of jokes about my parents, especially my dad. I'm, I'm very harsh on my dad. Um, and so I've, I've had a good friend. I had a good friend who was like, do you love your dad? And I was like, yeah, of course. I'm. This isn't indicative of that, but he's – Got lots of flaws and going back and forth. I had a very singular relationship with my father as an individual entity because he was a bachelor. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I'm going to talk about. I have no, that's just where my mind goes. I don't have the power to be selective about where my jokes come from. It's just like what it is that's on my mind. You know, some people might be so creatively gifted, they can really, you know, choose to talk about other things. But that's just where it goes. It was like a challenging family situation that I had problems with. And I'm like, there's lots of angles I want to talk about here. Do you find that that gives you almost like, like power over that experience? I don't know as much as it's like... I think a lot of it is like, I get to honestly say, uh, here's what it is. I think it's like, I get to honestly say how I feel or how I view certain aspects. So like my dad's dating a 31 year old and you know, it's, it's un and I'm 31 and it's, it's like, it's uncouth if we were at dinner for me to be like, dad, this is ridiculous. You're a fucking child. This is an old man. Why are you with an old man? You're 31. You must be fucked. I can't, I'm not allowed to do that. Or, you know, I'm not, I, I'm more polite than that. But on stage, I do get to be able to be like, this is crazy what my dad's doing. So I think it's, I think of it less as like a ownership or power and more like a relieving of uh, tension or a an exhale of stuff that I have to keep in normally. Okay, yeah. And that, I mean, that's, I mean, that's one of the most important no, 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 not important. Yeah, we'll just go with that word. Important um, parts of humor is like you, you, you can choose whether it, like it, it serves as a, a, a release or as an empowerment thing. Um, it, and it's a tool that you can use for that. And I mean, that's what got me into comedy in the first place, just personal experience and like, okay, there's something funny here. Like I need to find that so that I can move on from this and like figure yeah. out what to do next. And you it, know, I, wrote, I wrote a play, the play that I did it was about like an ex-girlfriend. It was like a breakup that like still to, to this day feels like one of the defining moments of my life. And like, cause it was just very painful and made me realize a lot of things. And it was just intense. And part of it's like writing that play. Uh, it's not in the moment I was like, I need to do this to get over this, but it really was like, I'm going to dive fully into this experience. I'm going to try to, take what I'm feeling and put it on paper. It's not necessarily successful, uh, but I'm really going to 
expel it all. And um, I think that's I think that's what a lot of a lot of art is. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. And and I mean, you see a lot of comedians who have dealt with you know a traumatic childhood um, on a parental level, whether it's abuse, mental or physical, or you know, unfortunately, sexual. Uh, I mean, you know, comics like Carol Burnett, you know, she dealt with alcoholic parents and like, uh, yeah, yeah. like Daryl Hammond and Cosby. Well, we'll, we'll, we're not going to mention him, but <laughs> that kind of shown through, showed through. But um, but yeah, I mean, like and then, you know, I, I'm also I'm partially because I'm a comedian. I'm always cynical. Like, I, I don't want to give it too much emotional because, you know, Jess Lynette was one of my favorites. Just like none of that shit is true. So I think he's probably expelling just a desire to like give voice to the darkest tickle that he has when he hears bad news. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of it's, some of it's meaningful, but some of it's just like, this was the, the lot I was dealt in life. And if I'm going to, you know, I went through all this shit and all I got was a good punchline and like, you know, I'm going to at least get that punchline. Right. Did you take uh improv at all i did the ucb 101 to 401 um i wasn't great i mean i was like decent enough comparatively because i had a performance background but i i was always very i would always question my moves mm. and i'd always I, i'd be one of those in the back line would be like come on no go 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 no i should have gone mm. Mm. um if improv I, I, when I see great improv, I, I am astounded. And I, if I could go back, I would have made it more a part of my life to see if I could get good. But uh, now it, it's, I admire it tremendously, but I was never good. Sure. Do you feel that that, you know, what you learned in improv uh, colors kind of the way you write, the way you perform? Uh, do you bring some of that? Oh, I should have gone or I should have said that. Uh, on stage as far as like now I've overcome it because I know because I had that experience where I you know yeah I mean I think it gets into crowd work which is like its own beast it's Mm -hmm. it's it's so much its own beast and uh I get asked to host a fair amount I think because I'm just because I'm high energy they know they know I'm not going to leave the room colder than when I go up even if I am not good. Uh, but crowd work, I think, is more where the improv comes in, where it's still so hard. I, I'm only okay at it, of uh, trying to keep it positive, trying to, try, even if you're being funny or cutting, to like really use what they give you to build on. And uh, that's more where I think the improv comes in, I think. Yeah. No, I, I tend to kind of yes and the audience and like almost act like they're another player on stage with me um, just through that experience. And it, yeah, helps. Yeah. it helps. I mean, I'm still, like you said, crowd work is just, it's its own animal. And it is. You try. I mean, I have so many notes to myself about crowd work. In I have two documents. One's like finished stuff, one's stuff I'm working on. And I always have notes that are like, really be curious, really be invested, take swings, really... You know, uh, when I see people who are great, you know, they, they'll, they'll see a kind of hat you're wearing and like build a whole thing about like, oh, the kind of guy who wears that hat. And for me in my head, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know what kind of guy wears that hat. And uh, well, that's not entirely true. Not all guys who wear that hat think this way. And 
and that could be inaccurate, but, but people are great. You know, they build and they also, they're so good at missing and moving on so immediately you can't see it unless you're really looking for it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, cold reading for psychics. Do you know about cold reading? No. Like psychics, uh, you know, TV psychics, um, the technique they do is called cold reading, which I think is very related to what crowd work is. But it, it's the kind of thing where you're like, uh, uh, do you have someone with uh, with in your family who died whose name starts with a J? No, K. And then you see them move a little. K, Katie, Catherine. And you, you just lean into the ones you get right so hard and so move on from the misses that it feels like you're just, you're an amazing psychic. It's the same with comedy. You lean on the things that are funny they don't see the times that you said, what do you do for work? I'm a plumber. And then you had nothing interesting to say. Um, what do you, do you fix? Do you, do you fix some pipes? Do you fix some pipes today? That's the worst. That's the worst. What did you, what did you do? I went to the beach and you're like, do you have fun? <laughs> uh, and it happens. It happens all the time. And it's uh, being good at crowd work also means like being willing to like, let 10 seconds of no jokes go by so you can find the funny. But in your head, you're like, if I don't have a joke in five seconds, this became a conversation. <laughs> Everyone will see it and it'll be terrible. It's so true, man. I, I, I feel that pain so much. It's like, I almost want them to give me one answer. And then when their answer is like so mundane, I'm just like, well, I can't do anything with this. This yeah. is your fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's, Yeah. I used uh, to have a bit where I, I would purposely do bad crowd work and then I'd go up to the, like, I'd say, I'd set it up. Like I just learned how to do this. So if you'd be so kind, I'd love to do some crowd work with you guys. And then it would go horribly. And then I'd go back up to the mic and go, I guess I just recently forgot how to do crowd work. And that that's was the good. Whole bit. That's a good save. Yeah. I'm working on, I've only done it on sketch shows, but it relates to parents stuff where I do, um, you know, what's your name? Uh, what do you do for work? I work at an ad agency. Oh, that's crazy. My dad ran an ad agency. Or really, the agency ran him. <laughs> Not much of a father figure to me personally. Um, you, what are your hobbies? Uh, my dad didn't have any hobbies aside from cheating on my mom. And like, I always get, I mean, you know, I'm always working on so many different things, but I always would get too scared to do that in like a regular club setting. Mm-hmm. Um but it's one of my like saved bits of like, you know, whenever we're performing regularly again, I'm like, I got to do this because I love it. I love that. Yeah. When you make that connection in the moment, I don't think there's anything better. Yeah. Uh, especially if, if it's through crowd work. Um, but that's a good way to do it. It's just kind of have like an, a, a lens that you're doing the crowd work through. So like everything that they say is going to be run through like my dad. Yeah. And you see, I work at LOL and there's some comics, you know, it's, it can be rough and tumble. It's a barking crowd. Mm-hmm. And there are some comics who are amazing crowd work comedians. And I've seen them enough that I'm like, Oh, they're, they're good at crowd work and they're good at improvising, but they also have a thousand save lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, a friend of mine named Kenny Ortega, he'll just do, Oh, you guys are married. How long have you been married? 12 years consecutive. And like that, that's it. It's the word consecutive. It's so silly. It always works. And it's, I, I told him, I said, if there's one thing I could steal, it would be that because it's like so easy to use at any time to restart things a little. 
Mm-hmm. And they have just like Ken Boyd is another comic. And like, I've seen him enough. I remember the first time I saw it and I thought this man is the smartest man in the entire world, but he just had, he, he is very good, but he has a hundred full act out crowd response, save techniques. And he's been doing it long enough and does it every night enough that he just every time. And he looks like the most amazing crowd worker when really it's a mix of improv and a lot of prepared punches. Okay. Yeah. I mean, another one, uh, James Mattern, that is just like, he just does his entire set as just crowd work. And then he gets the whole room in. I mean, I've seen him, you know, host the, the Caroline show multiple, multiple times. Yeah. And, and he's very positive. He's like positive. He's engaged. He's like, he's someone, sometimes I feel like I have to fake it because I'm more of an introvert, but James feels like someone, and maybe this is him just on stage pretending to, but like, he's like curious, mm-hmm. he's curious. And I think that's really important for crowd work to like really be like interested in like, that's fascinating. You're a plumber. Whoa. As opposed to me where I'm like, okay, I don't want to talk anymore. I don't know shit about plumbing. I know more about you than I, than I ever wanted to. Yeah. (laughs) Right. We should, we should text. You crossed the line. So going into, uh, back to the topic at hand, a lot of comics had to deal with with uh, rough childhoods, with you know non-supportive parents or or absent parents, and um, this is a uh, a bit that we're gonna call "If you think your parents are bad." <laughs> Let's dive into the 1700s. Uh, Maria Teresa Habsburg. Uh, over the course of 20 years, she gave birth to 16 children, 13 of whom survived infancy. So you know. Doing a good job there. I think that's pretty great for that age, for that era, you know. Um, Her first child was born a little less than a year after getting married. Uh, The child's sex caused great disappointment. It was a girl, Maria Elizabeth. And so would the births of Maria Anna and Maria Carolina. So she's just, she's got three straight girls. She's naming them all Maria. That's very weird. (laughs) First and foremost, as a child, like... (laughs) Now you have the same name as both of your sisters. That's not, it's like George Foreman. Uh, yeah, that is a very, that is a very lazy technique. Um, I don't know if it was common. She was named Maria too? Yes. Uh, something, something about that is weird to me. Cause I get the impulse to name my son, John Marco. And it mm-hmm. is to feel like I won't die. Like it is like, it is a clear that you are, they are just there. That's so weird to name your kid your name. People do it still, and it's fucking weird. I, I guess she just had, I wonder when she had a boy. So it was after three, she finally had a boy. Uh, she had, uh, eventually, I I copy, I pasted, I did I didn't include that. I, I like, it's, it, it's just, you know, after the second, yeah, what are you naming the second one? Maria, you named the first one Maria. Maria Babadula. Okay, Maria. Like, she's just so over these ladies. So she finally did have a boy. Uh, her, she gave birth to a son, Joseph. The first one to die. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's always, it's always ironic. Uh, she had prayed to St. Joseph for uh, a male child during her pregnancy. And so she named her son Joseph. And then five more children were born during the War of the Austrian Succession. Now, she was in charge 
Like she ran shit. So not only is she having kids, uh, she she was fighting a war. That is a mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. That's good. She named him after after Saint. I'm sure he appreciated that. I don't. This idea that the saint would like get involved. Like, was he there while they were fucking? And he was yeah. like, uh, "Make this one go." Um, Saint Joseph the Cuck. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> You know, they uh, named the kid after me. <laughs> it's going around town. Yeah. Just like, hey, yeah, see. Yeah, why didn't you name him after his father? Like his mother, all the daughters were named after Maria. Why St. Joseph? Well, because he did. It's like the equivalent of telling everybody you wrote that joke. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or that, that, that last brick, that was mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think she gave birth to the uh, the the busy soccer mom trope. Sure, like That's several minivans today. I got to do war. I wonder if there's like a minivan for for carriages or something. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's like sliding doors. Yeah, a kid dies, you just toss him out. <laughs> That's how it is. She brought oranges to the game. She sent oranges with the kids instead of actually going to the game. Uh, hmm. I, you know, there's, there's been no stand-up comedian who I don't think who's been like, so I have 15 siblings. Like, that's a whole one man show. You right. Know, you split it up. The first show is the first six siblings or just the older siblings. And then the younger siblings. That's a lot. Like, I don't know. I know what it's like to be the oldest. I've never heard what it's like to be the 10th. Right. <laughs> Louis Anderson was the 10th of 11. So he does. He, really? Yeah. What are there like tropes? Like, oh, you know, he's a tenth kid. Oh, they're the most annoying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when your hand-me-downs have gone through nine people before you, you feel like you know you're a bit of a brick. Right. The tenth kid's always the one that's like, I need new clothes. Ugh. <laughs> what a spoiled brat. That's what you. So many kids dying. I'm sure a lot of hand-me-downs are from their dead older brother. Right. He only wore this once. He actually died in it. <laughs> oh my god. Which one do you want when you grow up? Because he's got to be buried in one of them. You know? <laughs> right? Pick one. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, okay. So after uh, shortly after giving birth to the younger children, Maria Teresa was confronted with the task of marrying off the elder ones. So she's like, oh, now I have to marry. You find someone for you to marry to. Very. Uh, it's like, hey, you got, you know, Maria's into you. Which Maria? Because if it's Maria, <laughs> the Baba. It's the good Which one. Which one do you want? Trust me, it's the good one. Yeah. That's the, yeah, the good Maria. Yeah. <laughs> Which one am I, Mom? Am I the good Maria? Sure, honey. Sure you are. Sure. I love you, Maria. Which one, Mom? I'll never tell. <laughs> <laughs> now get back to picking out the clothes for your dead brother. Uh, <laughs> She uh, she led the marriage negotiations along with the campaigns of her wars and the duties of states. Mom, you're not spending enough time finding me a husband. I've got a war to fight, honey. <laughs> she was a devoted but self-conscious mother. She wrote to all of her children at least once a week and believed herself entitled to exercise authority over her children, regardless of their age and rank. She wrote, my dad doesn't text me once a week. She right. wrote all 16 children. And when they wrote someone, it wasn't a sup. It was like a letter. Right. That's, right. A, that's so much writing. 
so much right. She had to hire a guy to pour the wax and put the symbol on the envelope. You really can't judge a mom of 16. Like, you cannot even fathom what that's like. No, but uh, here's... Here's something fun. Uh, following her 50th birthday in May 6, 1767, Maria Teresa contracted smallpox from her daughter-in-law, Maria Josepha of Bavaria. So, another Maria. Daughter-in-law, too. She's like, you can only marry Marias to her <laughs> sons. <sighs> it's a good name. Yeah, I, I guess so. It's a family it's name. a nice name. Uh, Maria Theresa survived, but the young empress did not. Maria Theresa then forced her daughter, Archduchess, what do you think her name is? Maria. Wow, you nailed that. Five points. Uh, she forced her, do- Arch- her daughter, Archduchess-, Archduchess Maria Josepha, to pray with her in the imperial crypt next to the unsealed tomb of Empress Maria, Empress Maria Josepha. So there's two Maria Josephas. God. You can't you can't forget anybody's name if they're all the same name. It's practical. Why go through the list? Right? Just say Maria and they all look. Yeah. Uh, the Archduchess started showing smallpox rash two days after visiting the crypt and soon died. What a mother. Jesus Christ. Not the Yeah, the problem is like if you die that quick, you don't have enough time to develop material about it. You can't like fine-tune a joke. You just right. got the setup. Ugh, so you think your parents are bad. My mom took my sister to my other sister's burial site, and they all got smallpox. I'll never know what it's like to be a mother of 16, and I just found out last year that I'll never actually be a mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really you can't write those jokes, man. If you think your parents are bad... John List, the deeply religious and wealthy New Jersey banker, had three kids, a mansion, and a loving wife. In 1971, List had lost his bank job after spending days in a train station to avoid telling his family he'd been fired. Love it. List decided that he had to kill his family in order to save them. Hey, look. When you lose your job, I love I love that he spent days coming up with that plan at the train station. He was shopping it around. He was like, so I thought I could either get a new job or kill my whole family. Natural progression, right? Um, how did he kill them, does it say? Yes, on November 9th, 1971, he sent his children off to school. Then he loaded two handguns, walked into the kitchen where he shot his wife from behind, then shot his mother in the head while she ate breakfast. Oh my god! Yeah. So rather than like, rather than tell your family that you lost your job, just, I got to get rid of them. Well, that's why now you know if my mom ever complains about my jokes, I'll be like, "Hey, I could have shot you eating breakfast." Yeah. So maybe relax. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and if uh, if his mom had any hindsight, she would have known to turn around. Why are you doing this to avoid telling you I'm unemployed? Yeah. Right. I would rather not file for unemployment. Thank you. So then List ran errands at the bank and the post office, made calls to the kids' school, explaining that they would be absent for several weeks because of a family trip. And then he ate lunch. (laughs) I always I think it's very fascinating uh, when people have committed a crime, what they do after that crime before they know they're inevitably going to get caught. Because I'm like, did they... 
did they cool off? Did he enjoy that sandwich? Was it a good sandwich? Like, did he complain about like, oh, there's not enough pickles on here? Or was he just like in a daze? I mean, if you've done the deed, I feel like you want to enjoy you want to enjoy your last sandwich. Just like sadly taking bite, like the meat's falling out of the back of the sandwich. He's just getting bread and mayonnaise. He's got to move his mom's head off the table so he has room. <laughs> Egg on the boss's face who fired him because you imagine how many things he got done before he ate lunch. There he go. was a model employee, go. as it turns out. He did this <laughs> thing, he did this thing, he did this, did this thing, all before he ate lunch. That's beautiful. <laughs> He's a role model. You know, if, if you showed this this kind of assertiveness at work, <laughs> you never would have been fired in the first place. There we go. All wow. right. After, as soon as his kids came home from school, he killed them, too. Though oh, he... Boy. <laughs> Though he wrote a letter of confession, Liss decided to flee the house. It took authorities almost a month to discover the bodies. It was only after all the light bulbs in the house burned out that neighbors alerted the police. Wow. Did he just leave all the lights on? There. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's the part that upset you? You're like, what a waste yeah. of electricity. Con <laughs> Ed and Bill is going to be insane. Not only did I lose my job, but the electric bills through the roof. That's why he was fired, maybe. You know, he was efficient, but he always left the lights on <laughs> and wouldn't come back for days. That was the thing. The neighbors were like, hmm, the lights are normally always on. Seems there's a few that are out. Maybe once they're all out, we call the cops. All three kids. Jesus. I wonder if it was like, did all three kids, I don't know how school worked. Like, were they dropped off? Did the bus come? Was it one at a time? Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I want to. I uh, bet it was one at a time. I bet the bus dropped one off at a time. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's so funny. You you know, you joke about it, and then there's like there's this thin veil of like if we go too deep, it's the most horrifying thing in the entire universe. <laughs> oh, for sure. I, and I used to think that getting grounded was the worst thing that could happen to me. I bet by the third kid, he had great aim. Right. <laughs> the first one, he missed one or two shots. And then by the third, he was like, nailed it. Yeah. I wish I had a fourth kid. I'd, I'd crush it. <laughs> Hold still or no video games for a week. Here's the, fu- the, the crazy part. In May 1989, the 18-year-old crime was recounted on the Fox television program, America's Most Wanted, during its first year on air. The segment featured an egg an age-progressed clay bust of John List, which turned out to bear a close resemblance to his actual appearance. On June 1st, less than two weeks after the broadcast, List was arrested at a Richmond uh, accounting firm after a Denver neighbor recognized the description and alerted authorities. So he had an alias and a whole second family, and then they finally caught him 18 years later. He had started a whole second family in the time... Man, I haven't fucked. I have. I'm so single. This guy had a whole second family set up. You know, he might have gotten caught, but a TV credit is a TV credit. You know, I would. <laughs> I would kill for a TV credit for sure. I say it all the time. I killed him to be on Fox for a segment. And not only was I on Fox, but they made a statue of me. But think about the person who has to decide that. Like, hey, that bus looks like John from next door. 
Yeah, the one we just had dinner with. Like, think about being so sure that the statue is that guy. I mean, it's a statue. Yeah. If you're wrong, that's rough. You can't recover a friendship. Hey, hey, did you tell the police that I murdered a different family and killed three kids last night? My bad, you know. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it, they it told happens. Me it was, I was going to be anonymous. <laughs> All right. One more. If you think your parents are bad. <laughs> Ivan the Terrible. 16th century Russia. His, uh, Ivan the Terrible exiled his son's first two wives for being infertile. Then, for dressing provocatively, he beat his son's third wife while she was pregnant, causing a miscarriage. Yeah, they just they, these things can't go. Uh, aren't going. What was in. she wearing? What was she wearing? It's the age-old <laughs> question. Exactly. How provocative are we talking about? You and, know, back then it was like, oh, she showed her ankle, and he's like, you whore, I'm gonna beat you now. <laughs> and this was obviously well, you know, when you're known as Ivan the Terrible, and you marry into the family, you're kind of asking for it. That is that is true. That is like. Who's your father-in-law? Ivan the Terrible. And let me tell you, let me guess. He's terrible. You think your in-laws are bad. You think your in-laws are terrible. My name, mine's name is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> when he confronted his father, his father hit him over the head with his scepter, killing him. Oh my God. <laughs> hey, Dad. Uh, it's just, uh, just gonna... Yeah, address the elephant in the room here. You kicked out my first two wives, then my third wife gets pregnant, which is what you wanted. She shows a little bit of wrist, a little bit of ankle. You beat her up. What's the deal? And then just boop, on top of the head with a scepter. That must have been a crazy scepter. Yeah, I just don't know. Yeah, that's what, when I hear scepter, I think of like a poop. I feel like it's like a soft poop that goes wrong. <laughs> he, he probably swung it like a bat. Like oh, yeah. he must have known his dad was fucking nuts. You know, he's he's definitely the only way you're putting up with your dad at that point is if he's paying your allowance. And I think like <laughs> otherwise you're like, I'm out of here. I would like to keep a wife. But I bet you the reason he came he was like, Dad, can we talk about this? By the way, I need money, you know, for to get a fourth wife. I need a new ring. Yeah, that's what that's what they don't tell you. My dad killed my first three wives, but you know he's a good guy. <laughs> he's really Just got my best out. interest in hand. Hey man, he showed he showed he he could have been like King Henry the Eighth. You know that's that's another bad dad. Could you imagine your dad just like, oh yeah, I killed your mom today? I'd just be happy to have the attention. <laughs> man, all right. So Ivan the terrible, terrible father. Uh, we won't get into Woody Allen, but you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know. Why? What happened with him? <laughs> it's all about perspective. I don't know. Something he got really wrapped up in show business. He wasn't around a lot and didn't spend a lot of time with the kids. It could right. happen to any of us. Yeah, and also he named a son Satchel. So there's that. <laughs> that is the crime that we don't talk about enough. Yeah, <laughs> we don't talk about the other thing. But ugh, name your kid handbag. Come on. That's funny. <laughs> So you think your parents are bad. It's all about perspective. Um, there's always, you know, there's always someone who's had it worse. Well, I always, I wasn't like close or anything, but one of the American, America's Got Talent producers was talking to me 
Um, and they asked, you know, like, what's your story? And I was like, well, my, my parents are divorced. And they were like, oh, anything that hasn't happened to half of the country. <laughs> and and I, I didn't know. I was like, uh, everyone in my family is sad. Um, you know, no one's killed themselves, but I could make a few calls. Uh, like, it just was so clear that it was not bad enough for their show. Yeah, next. They're like a good hook. Um, but I tried. I mean, I was digging deep. Because I had my parents, like, the one thing, I'm figuring out how to talk about it on stage too, but like they had they had some money. Not like filthy rich, mm-hmm. but like, you know, with America, America's Got Talent, it's like, you know, if I succeed, it's like, oh, what do you know? And then if I fail, that's progress. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just like, I'm a very bad pitch for that <laughs> show. Listen, we bought we bought all of these sad piano tracks for these montages. Uh, we don't have anything wacky for you, so like let's. let's I would going. love, I would love if they were funny enough, or they were like self poking fun at to like really like be like, oh, you know, the pool, the heater broke one summer, and I had to go in the indoor pool, really cold. <laughs> Just like do it, like, like sad music and crying, and uh, that would be fun. And I and I can't hold my breath for long, and my ears were cold, and my nose was cold, and. It, but that's why you—that's the problem with those shows. Like, you could have a sad family, and it could be really fucked up. But like, like, what do you say? You're just like, yeah. I know it doesn't sound bad, but just have breakfast with my dad, and just imagine that, like, for 18 years. You know, it fucks you up in a weird way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the the uh, the premise of just like a really well off kid on America's Got Talent, but they play it like it's a really sad childhood. That could be a good sketch. Yeah, for sure. Um, he was voted in high school to be least likely succeed. He was homeschooled. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> That's my story. <laughs> there you go. There's your parent bit, Jeremy. But you. but you were voted least likely and most likely. That's the part that you leave <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah, Most true. likely to be least likely to succeed. Most likely end up in jail. <laughs> we give it a positive spin. <laughs> You'll be the first in the family to end up there. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk. We'll talk about you at Thanksgiving for years. <laughs> um, and the the most underrated bad parents in history. We already talked about this guy earlier, Joseph and Mary. Sure. Not uh, not great parents. Uh, I'm not gonna. I don't know if I want to throw the uh, the religious question out there the religion question like hey i'm pregnant it's uh it's gods i mean you just like if if that is true that like that's how this started that she fucked someone else um or you know god forbid back then it might have been not as uh feminist as that but like and she just said it, it was god and he bought it like that's can you you this could be a good sketch joseph telling his boys like being like, my wife's pregnant. Ah, nice. No, it's uh, it's not mine. It's God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really, buddy? You're leaving her, right? <laughs> no, no. We're, we're having this Lord's son. That could be. Ooh, I like that. Weirded out because you know he's he's better than you, dude. You know he has a bigger dick than you. <laughs> Doesn't that bother you, man? All knowing, all powerful dick. <laughs> Poor Joseph. They don't talk about that in the Bible enough. They do uh, not. They do not. 
Here's my reasoning no behind why they were bad parents. There's two stories about them being parents, and then uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, there's The first story is when he was born. He was wanted by King Herod. Dead. Not even alive. Just kill, just kill all the babies. So what's the first thing his parents do right when he's born? They let in dozens of strangers to visit the baby. Hey, you want to hold the baby? Oh, you want to hold the baby? Strike one. That's not good parents. Oh, you, they brought gifts. It's fine. And number two, uh, when he was 12, uh, they left him at the uh, the temple in Jerusalem and they made it like halfway home. And they were like, wait, we're forgetting something. It's like a very home alone. It was the first yeah. home alone. <laughs> yeah. Jesus! I mean, to be fair, I don't I don't blame Joseph for that. I mean, it's not his kid. No, you're right. That's true. She, she had in the airport... Jesus Christ! And that's how he came the phrase. And then he had to perform a series of hijinks to throw off all the Sanhedrin. Mary's like, I they can't believe you forgot. Water. They keep trying to drink water. He keeps turning into wine, so they're really drunk for the whole time. <laughs> they chase after him, but it's actually he's running on water, so they fall in. You could go a little bit. They just slip on the like a bunch of toy carriages on the ground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Broken Christmas ornaments. This isn't even a holiday yet. Um, but it's like you had one job. Yeah. And <laughs> it's God's son. Like, right. be careful. Don't believe him in front of the exhaust pipe of the car. Like, this is an important thing. <clears throat> right. Like, Jesus dies for your sin, but he dies too young. So. Be like, God, please provide us with a babysitter. <laughs> Uh, they needed it, for sure. So the, two two for two, bad parenting in the Bible. Too soon. I mean, there, there's so many different ways to, to look at, I mean, to look at your own parent parenting, your own experience, your own, you know, how to deal with the adversity that we're thrown as kids that we don't have a hand in, but we got to deal with it. If you find a way to laugh, you can if either... joke's good enough, you can talk about anything, but a joke's got to be good enough. Absolutely. And sometimes it takes years and years to, to tighten it up, just like it takes years to, to get through, you know, some of that childhood trauma. As far as if you were to, to leave with any parting uh, words of wisdom on the topic or just on comedy in general. I mean, all, the only advice I give people is just write. You just got to write and edit. And when you think it's done, it rarely is done. So it's it's I, I just know too many uh, younger comics that don't. I mean, it's it's older comics too, but just people who don't write. And that if you have an idea that you love, you got it's there. It usually is there. If there's a premise, if you have some aspect of your life that you really want to talk about, like you can. You just gotta write and say it out loud, have it bomb, and then you'll find it eventually. And then you just hold. I think also just like hold on. Like to some ideas, you might have to put it away for a while and revisit. But it's crazy. Either jokes that I wrote in the first year that are still like crucial to my act or jokes that I thought about when I was in high school before I did stand up. And then I realized, oh, how that could be a joke now. So, but just write, just, just please come, come to the stage with something to work on. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you bomb, but if you're not trying or you're not doing something, then, then that's upsetting. You know, especially after this, we stand-up comics need to work. So please, if you're going to join the arena, fucking work. Be good. Um, and that's the thing with writing, man. You just 
sometimes you can just, you know, just keep writing and writing and writing and writing and finally figure it out. Like, you know, uh, whether it's comedy or whether it's, you know, you're trying to, to overcome something or, or come up with an idea for something, just keep writing. Yeah. You'll figure it out. You'll make a connection eventually. Words of, uh, words of wisdom from Gianmarco Cerezi. Do you want to uh, plug anything? Just find me on social media. I put it on there. It's, it's my full name, Gianmarco Cerezi, Twitter, Instagram. And then TikTok's doing well. It's all that spaz, S-P-A-Z. Uh, but yeah, just find me on Instagram and Twitter, and I'll post all, the, all my other shit on there. Because who knows how much longer TikTok will be around. Yeah, I think, I think it'll stick around, because uh, I'm doing well. I'm like, I need this. Yeah. <laughs> the divorce Dear- kills on TikTok. <laughs> Dear Mr. President. Yeah, it is. I, I really have to watch myself like not to get most upset about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> All the other stuff, fine, but TikTok, DACA, and then TikTok. You know, yeah. <laughs> priorities. This involves me. Thank you for joining us, man. It was fun talking with you. Thanks, guys. No matter your childhood, no matter your upbringing. No matter what your parents are like, whether they killed your mom or whether they told you you can't do it, you can laugh at that. If you'd like to weigh in on today's topic, follow us on Twitter at You Can't Laugh Pod or like us on Facebook at You Can't Laugh at That and tell us how you did laugh at today's topic or how you didn't. This is all about the conversation, is what I'm saying. All right. Bye.